Hello, welcome again to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Leslie Cavendish, who is here to discuss his book, The Cutting Edge. Leslie started working as a hairdresser at Vidal Sassoon Salon in the heart of Swinging London, and he soon finds himself regularly cutting the hair of a certain Paul McCartney. Through Paul, Leslie finds himself in the Beatles' inner circle, on board the Magical Mystery Tour bus, and running his own salon at the Apple Tailoring Boutique on the King's Road. Leslie Cavendish, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Joe. Absolutely fine, thank you. Uh, we're here to talk about your book, The Cutting Edge, the story of the Beatles hairdresser who defined an era, which, uh, as I was saying, I've read my fair share of Beatles books, and it's definitely one of my favourites. It's a really interesting story. You could really have written this book at any point through the 80s or, or 90s. That Your story would have been just as interesting then. What was the story behind you deciding to write the book? Why did you decide to write it when you did? It goes back to my early days of um, working at Sassoon's, where I first started. And one of the first things that Sassoon ever said, always remember they're a client. Maybe good friends with them. Sit and listen. If you talk too much, give away too much, you're exposing yourself. So that was the philosophy that I worked through. I realised that when you meet clients, famous personalities, early in the morning, they could be grumpy, could be not, and, you know, you don't want to start having a conversation. You just keep quiet. You see certain things that you think, oh, really? She looks like that, or she's got, she's got a little scar there. You just keep quiet about it. So over the years, when that eventually got me into the Beatle world, and the opportunity to be at first with McCartney, then the other Beatles, and the whole entourage around them, uh, I was seeing things there that my tuition at Sassoon's was, keep quiet, Leslie, this is really interesting. This, you know, this is like uh, fascinating what's going on. Gradually, gradually, gradually putting me into that sort of uh, inner circle of called trustworthy just keeping quiet, being offered money by the news of the world, by newspaper journalists, what's going on, see me come out of the studio, tell us what's going on. One of the things that happened to me was that Derek Taylor, the Beatles press officer, I used to go up to the offices there and I used to see all these sacks of mail. And I used to say, he's like Father Christmas every day. I mean, Richard, he was. And he'd say, Derek, what's all this? And he said, this is all the fan mail that the Beatles get. And Richard was coming from all over the world and, I thought, that's fantastic. How did you do that? And he said, oh, it's something called Associated Press. And then we subscribe to it and they send it on. Don't forget, these are the early days, right? So I couldn't work out how then you get something from Japan. How have you got it? Something was in Savaro. And he, I said, oh, that's amazing. He said, would you like to go on the list? Yeah, can you do that for me? Thinking, what did it, what did it mean? And obviously, I didn't get sacks for all the mail, but I got some press cuttings kept coming in which I kept. Right, so move it on years and years and years later. I used to see people who were writing books about their association with Beatles. And I was thinking, hmm, I've got so many much more to say, but I didn't really want to expose myself. Maybe it was just me. Maybe you're right. At the time, I could have done it. But I just kept quiet about it. And I, you know, when I used to get, meet people years later, even at the time, the question was, um, would you do your hairdresser? We cut anybody famous. And I used to say, yeah, and I used to sort of say, yeah, a few pop stars. And I never really said it until someone said, well, you know, he cut the Beatles hair. I won't say I was embarrassed, but I didn't want that to be written on my forehead. 
the mm. Beatles hairdresser. But I got this scrapbook, and I was living in Spain at the time. I came back to London. And I used to get a few phone calls from people, uh, from newspapers, on anniversaries. I Lemon's death, uh, an anniversary of a, uh, an album, anniversary of a film. Um, what was it like? I heard you were on the Magical Mystery Tour, so I gave a little talk. Yes, that was fine. Years and years, years later, I think now's the time to tell this story. You know, there was nothing scandalous there. It was, uh, it was my journey, basically my Magical Mystery Tour journey, through my starting at 15, suddenly you, you get into a, a train. It's a bit, you know, without going from one analogy to another, but you, you start off as a politician, as a local MP, and the next thing you know, you're either in the cabinet, and you think, well, how did I get there? Well, the same thing with the hairdresser. I'm doing hairdressing, and suddenly I'm cutting the hair of people that I love, you know, mm. music-wise. I'm going home playing Beatles songs. I love my music. So... I just thought it'd be a nice story to tell. And what really helped it was, I had all the press cuttings. I can give you all the dates. I can tell you that when McCartney and Ringo came and had their hair done, I can tell you this and that. And, um, and I started remembering. And I, that's when I suddenly thought, now's the time to write it. You know, I want to get it out of the system. Hence, 2017 or 2018 was the time I decided. You mentioned him earlier there, Vidal Sassoon. Now, I mean, probably... Maybe the most famous hairdresser, certainly in Britain of the of the twentieth century, definitely of the sixties. How did you get involved in working for Sassoon? Like everything else, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I thought I was good enough to be a footballer. You know, football was my what I wanted to be. It was something to do with sport that I loved. You know, my academic life was I found a bit boring. Uh, I wanted to be a footballer. I had a very good mate of mine who's still my best friend today suddenly went into hairdressing, ladies' hairdressing. About six months later, because uh, I was at school when he left, uh, I said to him, "Why, Lowell, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing ladies' hairdressing. Now, the story goes that I went to pick my mum up at a hairdresser suburb around the corner in a, in a lovely little suburb called Burnt Oak. And she was at a salon there. And I walked in. I saw this American car. I think it was a Chevrolet. Outside in Burnt Oak, anyone knows Burnt Oak and North London? You don't have you don't have a Chevrolet car parked outside. You just don't. Okay, so I walked in, and there's this guy. He's doing someone's hair. Uh, he had two other ladies there, his wife and another stylist. So there suddenly there's three stylists and him with four other people around. Receptionist was a woman, and clients were waiting. And I just sat myself down. I thought, God, this guy comes to work every day in his nice little car, walks in, and he's surrounded by women. How nice is that? And he's actually making women look nice. And I did. And I thought, I can see why my, my best friend went into ladies' hairdressing. So that sort of made me think, okay, that's what I want to do. And he encouraged me, and he told me where to go because he was working at a place in Baker Street. I said, there's a guy that called um, Vidal Sassoon. He is um, really trend-setting hair. And uh, even his boss used to go on a seminar to watch how he used to work because he had this unique way of cutting hair. Hmm. And I thought, okay, that's absolutely uh, ideal. Let's go there. How do I get to Vidal Sassoon? Where is he? He's in number 171 New Bond Street. Uh, So I couldn't think what to do. I wasn't very good 
of drawing, painting, molding things. And I made a warped wooden bowl that I was very proud of. So I took it up there, plastic bag, go to the saloons. And this was completely different to this little salon in Burnt Oak. In walled ceiling to uh, floor mirrors as you go into the glass door. Reception with lilies on there. The buzz of chatter was the first thing that impressed me. It wasn't music. It was the chatter. People just running around. Lots of clients. Mezzanine, uh, where women have got their hands in a sort of little bowl and their feet in a little bucket. I thought, oh, my God, this this sounds great. This, this It looks good. And I walked through, and I, on my right, first day, I saw Shirley Bassey. Now I went downstairs and saw the manager, and uh, he said to me, you know, what makes you want to be a hairdresser? Sort of a bit stuck, you know, because now I am now suddenly there. Mm. And I said to him, uh, I pulled out this, this wooden bowl from a plastic bag and I put it on the table. And I just said to him, you know, I said, the way I shape this mold of this wooden bowl is the way I feel I can mold women's hair and compliment people for the answer soon. With that, he just looked at me, started a little smile on his face, had a little bit more of a chat. Uh, he said, okay, Leslie, I'll let you know. Thank you, but no thank you. Mm. And as I walked out, I thought, well, you know, this looks really good. I don't know how they do it. You know, it just looked lovely. And but three weeks later, I get a phone call saying that they decided to uh, accept me as a junior apprentice on the strength of having basically a chutzpah to show them a wooden bowl. And um, they thought, if he can come up and do that, let's see what he could do with his hair. So, you know, when I went there, it was absolutely... It was terrific. And that's where I learned, as I told you before, to keep quiet because I used to see famous people there, you know, mm. or pop stars, you know, Silla Black. And then you get Lulu coming in and then you've got Peter O'Toole going up the stairs having his hair highlighted. So all these faces are going there and it's, it's, it's quite buzzy and the guys there were terrific. So the whole atmosphere was lovely and it was exciting watching Vidal Sassoon. He, he was sort of special because he would sort of, uh, he would take about an hour and a half to, to cut someone's hair. He was like Rudolf Neuer with a pair of scissors in his hand and a comb. And every time he snipped the hair, his mouth would go like that, cunt. All these facial maneuvers, you know, what was great about it was, and he used to speak so beautifully. But I knew he was from the East End of London. That's where I came from. You know, he's from Whitechapel. And I wondered how he spoke so beautifully. And I didn't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just spoke to the way I spoke. You know, he had a beautiful, beautiful, remember, Dougie Hayward uh, suit, and he had Frank Foster shirts, and he had Pinay shoes, and everything about him looked apart, and I loved it. And I thought, oh, I wonder how I could do this. And eventually, you, you know, you get taught there. Uh, there used to be a model night, used to do uh, Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Used to finish work six thirty as a, an apprentice, be there from eight o'clock, eight thirty in the morning. Then they used to have model night. And model night was anybody that come in, you'd get your hair done really for nothing basically. And used to practice styles, hairstyles, and it was a good training. And he used to come around with Dell and uh, tell you, you know, we're doing this. And then you would come around, everyone would gather around with a new haircut that he designed. So in between all this incredible style you've got people like mary quant 
been having a haircut with this sort of a, a five-point cut. The next day, you see it in the paper. Mm. And you go, my God, and you're part of this sort of fashion revolution. Although I was in a very small part of it, but I, I was still there. Very, very exciting. And um, I, I've got a lot to thank him for because uh, without, you know, I come from a very loud mouth Jewish family. And, you know, for me to keep quiet is difficult. But watching how the people worked there, there taught me a lot. So it was my education for life. So this provides you with a way into Paul McCartney's Cavendish Avenue home where you you form a friendship with Paul and after being asked to, to cut his hair, I, I suppose an obvious question, but tell us how you got from cutting hair at Sassoon's into Cavendish Avenue. What was the journey there? Well, quite funny. The guy, you know, at Sassoon's you had lots of, you know, there's lots of different terms. You know, you, you're, you're a hairdresser, you're a haircutter and you're a stylist. Right, and there were certain uh, clients that went to uh, one guy that was a stylist. So if you want your hair done at a chignon or go to a premiere, he would do that. You get another guy that was sort of a, a hairdresser. Right, there's a slight little difference between the two of them. And then you get the haircutter. Now the haircutter was a guy called uh, Roger Thompson. He was the artistic director of Sassoon, and Roger got me under his wing, and he. He didn't have much personality, to be honest with you, but he was a great hairdresser, and he was slow. And his chitter-chatter was boring, to say the least. But, you know, people didn't come there, to say, not to chitter-chatter. They came there to have the haircut, and he was good. And I stayed with him for... I should have stayed with him for three months. So what you do is you stay with a stylist for three months, and you work your way, and you learn all these different uh, ways of dressing, cutting, styling, whatever it is with hair. So you get an overall effect. Well, Roger kept me with him for nine months. One of the clients was Jane Asher. Lovely lady, long, thick, red, blondish red hair. And so I used to go and wash her hair. He used to go and hair dry. It used to take me about 30, 35 minutes. He used to chat to her, never spoke to her. We all knew who she was. Never say, how's Paul? How's the Beatles? How's this? You just don't do that. We kept quiet. And she was actually very nice and friendly because uh, she said, oh, I'm so tired. I've just been filming. Oh, so then it leads to what you're filming. So the conversation came from her, very easy to talk to. So I used to wash it, I used to hand dry it, and then after that, I used to go over to Roger and say, Roger, um, Miss Asher's ready. Um, would you come over when you're ready? She's waiting to go. And you quickly put the whatever he was doing, come over, look at it, and he would just fiddle around with it, you know, because that's he's got to put the, the magic touch to it. And he shows her the back mirror. She said, thank you, Roger. That's lovely. I did all that. But anyway, it didn't matter. So I got to know how to do her hair. Now, when I became a stylist, you used to get people who didn't sometimes book an appointment. So you, you had an appointment to have your hair done. But you sometimes a client would come by and say, can somebody do a comb out? Which basically means, can you or have it washed and just do it quickly? And Jane used to come in. And a few times she came in and Roger was so slow and so busy, said, oh, I can't do it. Do you think Leslie can do it? Okay, so he was sort of passing off. And diplomatically, he should have made sure that he had time for her hair. On the fourth occasion, this happened, receptionist came down to me and just said, Leslie, Jane's a bit sort of uh, not very happy. You know, Roger, again, can't do her hair. Can you do it? So I've done it now three times, right? Don't forget. I've... I said, yeah, sure. It's on a Saturday morning. So she comes in, goes through the whole scenario, I mean, 11.30, 12, about quarter to one. 
And I go to football in the afternoon, so I know exactly what I'm doing. And she said to me, what are you doing this afternoon? Literally, I don't forget, you're looking at her in the mirror. So I'm behind the chair, she's looking at me in there, and I said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, oh, I said, well, what do you have in mind? And she just said to me, so casually, she said, have you got time to cut my boyfriend's hair this afternoon? In my head, I don't I know who her boyfriend is. Yeah, of course. And she said, great, so what time suits you? So I pushed my luck slightly because I'd go and watch my team QPR at Shepherd's Bush. And I know I can get from Shepherd's Bush to where they lived in about 45 minutes. I sort of said half past five, quarter to six, thinking it was half past 12, quarter to one when she asked me this. I'm sure she meant maybe I should be there by two o'clock or three o'clock. And she said, yeah, that's fine. Jane, by the way, where do you live? So she said, oh, she's got a bit of paper. I just wrote down seven Cavendish Avenue. And I said, Jane, I said, that happens to be my surname. And she laughed. She just said to me, well, maybe it was meant. <laughs> so there I am going to a football match. And again, I'm not telling anybody. I'm never saying to everyone, oh, guess what? I'm going this afternoon. You know, I didn't even tell anybody at work. I finished the game, came out, got in the car. The reality stuck in that I drove to Cavendish Avenue. If anyone doesn't know where Cavendish Avenue is, it's just behind Lord's Cricket Ground, which is my other favourite second home. And I parked my car as I passed his house, which coming up from Lord's side would be on the left. I saw some girls outside. So I thought, well, that must be where it is. About four or five girls out there. So I parked just a little bit further to gather my thoughts and thinking, right, okay, now you're going there as a professional stylist. Just go in there. So I managed to get, as I pressed on the door, these girls said to me, what are you going in for? What's your name? So I said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm nobody. <laughs> I just pressed the buzzer. And this uh, housekeeper, Australian housekeeper, lady said, oh, Mr. McCartney is expecting you. Great. Okay. Walk in, close the door. First thing I see is uh, Aston Martin, green Aston Martin on the, on the left. I felt cold blood. I mean, you know, you know, this is only James Bond's got this. This is big time stuff. Go there, gather in my thought, carry my little bag, go up the steps there, take a deep breath. Thought, right, I press the buzzer. Housekeeper will come out. Uh, she'll tell me, it's in my head. She'll tell me to go and wait there. I'll sit there like I'm in a, in a, in a surgery and I'll be called by somebody to come and cut Mr. McCartney's hair. Press the bell. Door opens, there's McCartney. I mean, he caught me right on the hop. I did not expect him to open the door. And just said to me, oh, hi, Leslie, James told me a lot about you. Would you like to come through? And would you like a cup of tea? So I said, yeah, uh, no sugar, please. Thank you. And I sat down in this room, in this front room, with a mad dog running around me, tended to be Martha, hairs everywhere, uh, guitars by the fireplace, colourful piano, and... Um, Next thing, within six minutes, I'm having tea with Paul McCartney. Now, that's surreal because it would have been so different had he come into the salon because someone would have said, oh, by the way, Mr. McCartney's in there, fine. You know, come in and I'll be talking to him in the mirror and it'd be very professional. But no, I'm now having tea and he is making me feel relaxed. He's not playing the I am person or you're here. It's just a very relaxed environment. And I actually think I know the reason why. 
my first outing with him was in September. They had just finished their final concert in Candlestick Park in August. And this must have been the very first time for him to be Paul McCartney rather than the Beatle. So when I saw him, he was unshaven. You know, one or two days on growth, you know, he, can you imagine that as a Beatle, you are being interviewed, you're doing concerts. They had, they looked the part. It was only two after 1967, they started, the hair got longer, the beards and uh, moustaches and clothes changed. And I think I caught him where he was relaxed. Mm. And that was good for me because it put me at ease. Let's go back a year. If he was still a Beatle and still touring, I'd probably have about half an hour with him, the most. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that <clears throat> come in a relaxed environment. It would be, you know, oh, I've got half an hour to do his hair, bang, he's got another appointment in and out. So by this particular situation, it was, you know, he had time to talk to me. And I was being careful what to say. It wasn't like, you know, what's it like being a Beatle? You know, it was nothing like that at all. It was, it was just a casual conversation. You then form a, a friendship with Paul and you cut his hair many, many times back at Cavendish Avenue. Why do you think he got on with you? What do you think was the reason for him inviting you back so many times? Because except for the inner circle, you've got to remember, I'm a London boy. I was not the person saying, oh, by the way, can I have your autograph? Oh, by the way, can I have a piece, can I take some hair? Or paying in a way, pounding his head with Beatle type of stuff. Mm. I talked to him about a little bit about football. He wasn't that interested. I talked, he asked, you know, talking to me about other clients. I used to do Peter Ash's hair. Other, he was interested in uh, whose hair I used to cut. It was general chat. One of the things that uh, cutting men's hair or whatever, I used to like asking about sport, you know, what football team is sport? What do you think of the cricket? What do you think of this? What of that? Quite amazingly, of all the four Beatles, I never spoke to them about sport. You would think that, oh, yeah, what do you think? You know, Liverpool, the Beatles, you, you, you just go hand in hand. So what do you ask someone? You ask somebody, have you written any songs at all? Now, that is like... Uh, the wonderful thing, you know, to say to an artist, have you written anything? Because what do they want to do? Yeah, I have. What do you think of this? So that was my buzz. And I showed interest in something that he was doing. Mm. And he used to play me a few songs. You know, I didn't know any of these songs. They were just tuned. So obviously it was very, very relaxed. And um, one, the only thing I ever wanted to watch, I wanted to watch the Beatles record, which through him, he... Uh, he made that possible. Now, luck has it that there were two guys from Sheffield who had a studio called Trident Studios, who at the time, they used to go to EMI and record. But because they had an eight track and EMI only had a four track, they used to sneak off to there. And I used to go down there half, at least half a dozen times, watch, watch a very, very small studio, Trident Studios. I used to sit and watch. Uh, so you you mentioned in the book that you you didn't really cut Ringo's hair much because obviously his wife Maureen was a a hairdresser herself. Yeah. But you did get to cut uh, John and George's hair. Tell us a little bit about how that kind of came about and how different it was cutting their hair to, to cutting Paul's. Yeah. Okay. So here I am cutting Paul's hair at Cavendish Avenue, 
Derek Taylor was my was my cog. He would be the one. Leslie, can you come up, cut my hair? That's how it started. And also, I used to go up there to get paid. Never asked Paul McCartney to get any money. He once said to me, have you been paid? Now, I didn't want to tell him I would have done it for nothing. Right? But he said, have you ever been Have you been paid yet? So I said, no. He said, well, go and see Neil Aspinall. Go up there and um, give him the bill. That got me up into the Apple offices. The Apple offices was run by basically Derek Taylor. You know, to get through to the Beatles, you had to get through to Derek Taylor. Mm-hmm. Derek Taylor obviously knew that I was going around Paul McCartney's. I didn't think about it at the time, but Derek Taylor, being a press officer, must be thinking to himself, well, I hope Leslie doesn't give any secrets away. Well, once he knew that there was nothing in the press to say I said something, because that was like a bit of trust was thrown in there. So I used to cut Derek's hair. Basically, how it worked, that the Beatles had an office, and when they walked in, Paul would always be the one, so had two receptionists downstairs, and they walk up into the offices. Paul would sort of walk in and go, with his thumbs up, all right, everything's cool. Ringo would walk in with his piece of love sign. George was floating. John Lennon was like the headmaster. So I always noticed that when he was in, if you can imagine sitting there, then suddenly the headmaster walks in, you sit up straight, you know, you make sure that uh, everything's looking up. But I always felt that when, when Lennon was around, everyone, there was an edge there, and you didn't know, obviously, what mood he could be in, if he was in a good mood, bad mood, whatever. And I was up at the office there, standing next to Derek, and Lennon came in, came bounding up the stairs, he did. He said, you know, hi, they had a little chat. And he literally just pointed his finger and said, who's he? And he's Leslie, he cuts Paul's hair. He said, well, send him in and cut, I need my hair cut. That's exactly what happened. So he went, then he just went off into a meeting room, and he said to me, John wants you to go and cut his hair. Now, you tell me what other normal person would want to have the haircut while having a meeting. And I went in there and he had this, uh, he had a big office desk that was in there, a chair, had a seat where obviously journalists would be there and they'd be asking a few things. Uh, that was the very first time. Uh, George used to float up. I was cutting George's hair again in the offices, very quiet, very interesting. He was always talking to other musicians, people that were part of the Apple, on the Apple label. Mm. Uh, especially a guy called uh, Jackie Lomax, who I got to know pretty well. And George was, that was the first time George was very excited about this. Again, what you're doing, George, he said, I'm, I'm uh, producing. It made, at that, it, that particular time, was very, very relaxing for the Beatles because I think they were finding their own way. Mm. Well, certainly George and Ringo. Ringo's situation came about that they formed uh, Apple Films and the guy in charge of Apple Films was there. Dennis O'Dell, and on a few occasions he said, we, uh, can you go down and do Ringo's hair? He's doing a film called The Magic Christian with uh, Peter Sellers. I'm going, oh, wow, and then guess who else? My pin-up, Raquel Welsh. <laughs> yeah. So I go down, I spent five days there doing Ringo's hair. It all used to sort of blend in, mm. but the main time I was mainly doing George's hair at the salon that the Beatles opened up for me, and George... He used to, we had a shop, they opened up a shop for me in the, in the King's Road, part of the Apple clothing business. They had one in Baker Street and I had one in the King's Road. And he used to always, always, I'd get a phone call from his chauffeur or PA and say, oh, George would be up in about half an hour to make sure the salon's clear, basically. And it would be. I didn't never, never chucked anybody out, but I, I had enough time to make sure that when he came in, um, he came down and 
he used to be there for half an hour, an hour. I used to have music on, we used to do a little talk, not talk. And then he would just go out, float out, get in his car, go up to Wigmore Street or Savarova or whatever later on. So, yeah, that's that's how that all came about. They were all different in so many different ways, you know. Mm. Going back a little bit from that period, I want to talk, if it's okay, about Magical Mystery Tour. You're the first person I've ever spoken to that was on that bus, and so it, it'd be good to get some insight from you about that particular kind of 10 days or so. So, first of all, how did you get the invite to join the Magical Mystery Tour? I was round at Paul's one day, and it was like I got a two-for-one, basically, about a couple of weeks before or a month before. George Harrison was around there, and they said, uh, Leslie said, we're expanding our business, Apple Clothing, which we have one in Baker Street, and my uh, a tailor that I use, a guy called John Criddle, has a shop in the King's Road called Dandy Fashions, which we are now taking over. They're going to call it Apple Tailoring. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. And he said, um, we'd like to open a salon for you downstairs. It's okay. Okay, well, of course it's okay. <laughs> yes, I should say so. Okay, so that was that time. Two weeks later, in between that, Brian Epstein had died. I would get a phone call from, from Mal Evans or Neil Aspen and say, can you go around the port? There was never a port to ring up and say, hi, Levy, can you come around? A bit around there. And I didn't quite know what to say, actually, because Brian Epstein had died. I thought they were grieving and um, I sort of went in there and said, I'm so sorry to hear about the situation. You know, with Brian, it must be very sad. He said, yes, it's very sad to be part of our life. You know, he wasn't sort of um, dismissing it. And, you know, and he just sort of talking. He said, and by the way, he said, um, what are you doing uh, next week? Hold on. This is, someone's already told me, about, would you like a hairdresser salmon? Not too long ago. What am I doing next week? So I said, um, what, why? No, I don't know. I was working. You know, I'm working at Sassoon's. He said, uh, I've got this idea that um, um, we've got this coach and we've just got some fan club members and some all different people. And we're just going to start off. I'm just going to go on this journey down to Cornwall. And would you like to come? We'd like you to come. You know, you can be part of the crew there, part of the passengers. And plus you can do a hair at the same time. So I said, Oh, now in my head, I said, yeah, the obvious question was yes. That's how that came about. And I'm just thinking to myself when I left, this is unbelievable because this would be the first time that I would have seen all four Beatles together to be in a coach with 43 people uh, and be part of it and, and seeing that what happened would be fascinating to see how this Lennon McCartney whole thing worked. So, yeah, getting on the coach, it didn't take me long to realise that McCartney was the conductor of the Beatles. You can see he was the Beatle. He would make, he was directing with the, asking the director at the time. And they had little bits of paper. Um, it was very ad lib on the way there. The main character, once we picked up, we had this sort of laugh. We're waiting for the coach to turn up at Allsop Place. Didn't turn up. Half past eight in the morning, I'm still there. I go and have a, a cup of tea with Paul and the, Transport Cafe there, there's loads of pictures that uh, photographers came in and took. We got on the coach, which turned up about two, three hours late. And we finally get down to Weybridge and we pick up Ringo. And there was a lady there who actually was now is Aunt Jess. And he plonks herself next to her. So the whole scene's around his aunt and screaming and shouting and mucking about, you know. So that was like the focus of it. 
And John and George were sitting halfway through. We never sort of sat in the same seats the whole time. Uh, but John and George uh, sat next to each other a lot. Now, John was falling asleep half the time. Now, I don't know if that's because they were interested. I'm not sure if it was because they were thinking about Brian Epstein. I'm not sure what it was. They were, they were still fun. The moment, you know, Paul would interact then with Paul. John, what do you think of this? And what I thought was nice was the camaraderie between all four of them when they got together. Yeah, you know, you know, everyone has differences and their opinions. And uh, I'm sure when they're on their own, that um, everyone would talk, you know, someone would talk about this one and that one or say things, especially Lennon, um, about Paul or George or Ringo or whatever. But when you see them together as a unit, you can see why they were great, actually, because mm. they, they had some chemistry between them and the banter between them as well. So this journey has taken us uh, all the way down to uh, Devon first. We went over a bridge that they, that they were trying to go over a bridge. And the coach driver didn't realise it wasn't wide enough. And Lennon goes nuts, you know, goes outside and starts screaming and shouting and kicking it. All being filmed, this is. It never was in the film. Was he frustrated? Did he come back and ruin it? No, no. It was on the bus again. We got down to the Atlantic Hotel, and then that's when I saw the Beatles out and about with the public, and they were terrific. They were very gave them autographs. You know, I had seven days. That was actually fantastic to watch it. It was the you know it was my only time that I could actually see that. Did you get a sense of how chaotic it was? Was it the narrative around Magic Mystery Tour? Was that it was a bit higgledy-piggledy and there wasn't any script or anything. Did you get a sense of that or is that a little bit of a myth? No, you, you did get a sense of it because nobody, it was sort of, um, well, we're not, we're not going there, we're going to go there to the driver. You know, normally you would have it all planned out. This was, this is what we're doing. This is where we want to get to. They obviously had points of we're going to go to there, we're going to go here. We ended up in a fish and chip shop. That was yeah. never on the plan. That was only because little Nicky's uh, mother's aunt and uncle had this fish and chip shop. Somewhere along the line, someone must have said, must have said, oh, my aunt's got a fish and chip shop. Oh, let's go there. And we fancy some fish and chips. Something, because that was never on the plan. Yeah. It was never in the original film, actually. I watched the clip of that scene where you all go into the fish and chip shop on YouTube, yeah. and which is about, it's about 15 minutes. And you're right in the centre. You're right at the the counter, and then, and you and then you lift up little Nicola. Uh, so yeah, you're really for some reason you're the kind of centre of attention there, aren't you? Well, there you go. So if you look at it, someone ever says to me about the bees, and say, yeah, John, George, Paul, Ringo, and Leslie, and here's the picture. <laughs> I've got a picture of us five all at the fish and chip counter. There, it's all very ad libbed. It was all so chaotic. Yes, amusing. Chaotic. Yes. Because no one got uptight. Mm. People didn't know what they were doing, but no one got uptight. And then uh, you did think to yourself, how are they going to mould all this together? It, for me, and I'm sure the other 42 people on that coach trip, it was uh, something to remember. Uh, yeah, it was a fantastic experience, I, I must say. Did you watch it on Boxing Day that year live? Do you remember what you thought oh, of it? Oh, God, yeah. Mum, Dad. Yeah, it was, you won't believe it. All these colours there and suddenly bloody thing comes on in black and white you know you don't do that oh and it got very bad um, reviews obviously you listen to the songs though the songs were terrific yeah 
you listen to the Beatles songs that came out of that film. Fantastic and, and different as well. That was the Indian influence as well. Mm. So a, a nice way to to kind of round off our, our conversation, Leslie, is to talk about uh, the event in 2012 when you went to a screening of Magical Mystery Tour and the kind of guest of honour, I suppose you'd say, is, is one Paul McCartney, your old client. Tell us a little bit about, about that event and about what happened when you saw Paul again. It's very interesting. So in between all that time, I've got uh, two sons. I've got one that 2012 is... Uh, um, was in the British Army. He was on leave and he was in London and I get an invite that they're going to do the digitalised or the film. I got an invite, lovely invitation actually, I've still got it. And it was plus one. So I said to my son, I said, uh, would you like to come? So he said, yeah. He said, uh, do you think Paul McCartney will recognise you? And I said, of course he would. Of course he would. Right. We're on the train going to the uh, uh, South Bank in London. And I started thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is over 40 years later. He's, must have, he's met millions of people. How the hell is he going to remember me? Right. So I'm saying to myself, well, well I'm not going to go over to him. So I thought, no, I'm just not going to say anything. We're sitting up there, he, the lights went down. He then comes in with Giles Martin, sits down with Giles Martin. Where's he sit? He's sitting two rows behind me. So I see him there, and the, the lights go down, the thing all comes up, and then the fish and chips sing. I said to my son, well, that's me there. And I said, well, I tried pointing at me, but he, I'm, I'm much younger. I was only, well, how old was I? Uh, I was 20 years old at the time. Comes to the end, everyone claps. And uh, thank you, Giles. Did somebody from stage? Thank you, Giles. This is it. Hope you did enjoy it. And people start walking out. And I said to my son, just by any chance that I do bump into Paul McCartney, take a picture. If I had an iPhone, then I would have a million pictures. Right? Hence, I wrote the book because I've got it all in my head. I said, if you see me talking, do us a favor, just take a picture. Everyone's walking by. I was being a bit held up with the people on the same row as me, people were going up to Giles and Paul McCartney going, oh, fantastic, Paul. And he's saying hi to everybody, a bit like he normally does. And as I'm walking out, the lights lit up. I turn around. I stood up. I just looked around like to see if it had gone or was there. And we caught each other's eye. And I thought, oh, do I say anything? But again, before I said anything or thinking, shall I say something, He's gone, Leslie. And I went, Paul. <laughs> and then as we walked out, he was really nice. I tell you, he waited till he got to out, waited till I got out. He put his arm around me and said, how are you? I said, I'm really well, thank you. I'm really well. I said, it's been a long, long time. And then, you know, and I said to him, do you remember what I always said to you? He said, what's that? I said, remember that song you sang? When I get older, losing your hair. What did I always tell you? I said, what? I said, look at you. Look at me. It didn't happen, did it? <laughs> he went, all right. Then we go out and then uh, we walk out together. Then we meet Liam Gallagher. My son's behind me. And then we pass our ways. Get outside. I said to my son, by the way, son, his name's Aidan. I said, uh, did you take any pictures? He said, you won't believe it. He said, we got to the end. 
And I put my camera up, and the security guard said, hey, mate, you can't do that. And he said, well, that's my dad. So he said, okay, he took a picture. So I said, show me your picture. All right, and I'm thinking, oh, at least I've got a nice picture. He said, show me the picture. And he's taken a picture of the back of our necks. As we're walking out, I've got a picture of Paul McCartney's neck and my neck going out together. I said, that's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely well done, son. That's how I can rely on you to take a picture. And uh, but anyway, what I liked is, and I've really given a little bit away at the end of the book, but um, they were my final words to Paul. I told you, because I always knew that we we have a parting. When you do your hair, your hair breaks there. Not everyone's got a natural thing there. And Paul McCartney does the same same thing as me. I would say that he's got a very similar texture to me. And I'll put it the other way around. I've got a very similar texture hair to him. Mm. And I just had a feeling, knowing the way hair grows, that we would... I was pretty sure that we both have our hair, when, especially when we get to 64+. Plus, and uh, I'm proved right. I'm lucky enough to still got my hair. He's lucky enough to still get his hair. There you go, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Well, Leslie, it's uh, an excellent way to end... It's brilliant that he remembers you and that you that you had that moment. So the book is The Cutting Edge, the story of the Beatles hairdresser who defined an era. Leslie Cavalis, thank you so much for talking today and for sharing your memories. Thanks, Joe. Take care.